Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I am your acting host, what? Eric Hampton. <laughs> new new voice on the podcast. Oh gosh, David's got to run for his money. <laughs> yeah, let's see if I can uh, muster up a little bit of uh, talent to rival his. I am the <laughs> vice president of marketing for the Lex Rex Institute, and of course, I am joined by our lawyer supreme. Alex Haberbush. Yeah, that's right. I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute and also a practicing constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today or ever on this podcast. <laughs> it's a good point to know <laughs> that uh, nothing in this podcast is constituting legal advice, even though we uh, have a lawyer on here. It just and, uh, just because I is... am a lawyer and you're listening to this podcast does not mean that I'm your lawyer. And uh, definitely don't take legal advice from me. Um, I just have a nice smile and can make things sound nice. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the opinions of all the individuals expressing them are not necessarily those of the Lex Rex Institute. They are of these individuals exclusively. That's right. And making stuff sound nice is really a skill, Eric, because lawyers aren't very good at that. You know, we're used to calling things like first amended complaint against and then you you list all the defendants and you say what all the causes of action are. There's a reason people don't typically read the actual legal documents and just read articles about them. So we very much appreciate what Eric does here. He'll make things sound great on this podcast. Yeah, Lex Rex Institute, for those who don't know, is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about what we do or make a donation, we really appreciate that. You can visit our website, LexRex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. Perfect. Um, Well, just as a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast. It is not a political issues podcast. We try to keep commentary just to legal issues. Today, as we all know, many legal issues tend to overlap with political issues, uh, even with the court becoming so politicized that they seem like one and the same. (laughs) So it's especially important for us to make that distinction today. Yeah, that's actually Alexis de Tocqueville talked about that way back in. When was he writing? Like early 19th century. Uh, He was basically sent by France to figure out democracy doesn't seem to be working well for us in France. Figure out what they're doing in America differently. What makes it work for them? So he wrote a book, Democracy in America, where he talked about what worked and what didn't in America. And one of the things that he noted is that legal issues in America don't seem to be all that separate from political ones. But we're going to try our best to make sure that there is some distinction there, even though there's going to be some overlap. That's natural. That's not a problem. That's just the way things are. So Anyway, our name, Lex Rex, I didn't need to explain all that, but I did anyway. So our name, Lex Rex, is actually Latin for the law is king, because we believe that the law is our only king, not Charles or anybody else. Absolutely. So um, it's not true. Speaking of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of, we as in not us, but Britain, um, the United Kingdom in general, actually does have a new monarch. We went to God Save the Queen. I guess yeah. that's what they the, say. There. The queen is dead. Long live the king. Mm. Well, rest rest in peace. Yeah, that queen was, Lizzie. You know, for a third of America's total existence, Elizabeth was monarch of Britain. That that is a lot. I mean, basically the entire modern world, Elizabeth presided over. That's that's a huge loss. Yeah, she really uh, really got a chance to see quite you know some some interesting highlights of of American politics. Definitely, I think she met something like 13 out of 14 presidents a lot somewhere along there um that's a so lot yeah of she presidents. definitely had quite the survey of american history to start today we are going to get into some current american politics instead of britain we are trading in our tea for coffee and we're <laughs> i still drink tea look. but i guess i'm a bad american <laughs> I drink coffee and I drink it black. <laughs> for good for you. Like a true blood. You know, that actually, that actually does stem to the Stamp Act uh, because when the British imposed taxes on tea, extra taxes on tea, which actually, by the way, did not make their tea more expensive. It made it cheaper, but it gave the East India Company an exclusive monopoly. The Americans were so mad, they stopped drinking tea altogether. And we are a coffee drinking country to this day because of that. So fun fact. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, really is. Je- rejecting things on principle is a is a purely American thing. and Drinking uh, an inferior even, beverage just because the other one is now subject to a new tax. 
and choosing choosing to pay more for it as well. Yep. <laughs> Distinctly American. But we'll jump ahead. And so we wanted to forecast some of the upcoming Supreme Court cases that will be coming up on the docket. They are currently on a little vacay, a little recess. And we'll take a look at two petitions being considered or that have already been considered yeah, so by the, lower These are petitions for writ of certiorari. I don't believe either of these have been granted yet. I believe they're currently on petition. Supreme Court's going to be considering them early in its term. I hope they'll be granting cert on both of these. And what I, when I say you know, certiorari, another fancy Latin word, but basically what writ of certiorari refers to is a petition to the Supreme Court saying, please hear our case. And we're, we're hoping the Supreme Court says yes to both of those. So... That's what we're looking at. We're going to give our little pitches for why these are important cases. But we hope that you guys agree. And it's not just because we want the Supreme Court to really earn their salary. You know, we want to make sure they're <laughs> they working. They get paid pretty well. <laughs> yeah. We want to make sure that they are hearing cases and not just, uh, you know, sitting, taking a longer vacation. Yeah. And the other thing is, both, so both of these cases we're going to look at are cases that are on matters of criminal procedure. Now, we did sort of our first criminal procedure video came out last Friday. I did that with Alex Bostic. Check that out if you get a chance. Uh, lots of new hosts this week. But this is sort of our next foray into criminal procedure as far as our education wing is concerned, because we think it's very important. One of the areas of traditional American English rights that I think has been most eroded over the past, really, it's just last couple decades, you know, past 20 years or so, is rights of the accused. Really, one of the hallmarks of the American legal system is the way in which we treat the accused, that you are innocent until proven guilty, and we have all the different markers of treating somebody as innocent until that verdict is finally handed down. I think that's gradually been struck away. And a lot of that's because the criminals that come before the Supreme Court are debatably pretty bad people. You know, so throwing a, throwing a conviction out on what appears to be a technicality is something that in most instances, our justices don't really want to do. But we would encourage people to think about the fact that it's much better, What's how does the saying go? You'd rather let a thousand guilty men go free than convict a single innocent person. And the way that you ensure mm. that is good procedure. It really is important. I think it's foundational to the idea of liberty. So that's gonna be one of the things that we're looking at today. Yeah. Not not every one of the exceptions where, you know, somebody gets out on a technicality, so to speak, is going to be a Bill Cosby where it's somebody who has committed. <laughs> well, he, he uh, did get convicted. You know, so, well, he did. But then he also he also ended up getting uh, his punishment or he, he essentially got out on a technicality because of that. Was it a mistrial? I they don't remember not. all the facts on that. I believe that they had used evidence that was given under. And again, this may not be something to get into because we don't have the case yeah. in front of us. We have other cases to review. But essentially, also, he got keep in out. Mind, the reporting um, on legal matters tends to be really, really bad. So part right. of why Eric's being hesitant to give you guys the details here is that he may not have looked at the actual papers in front of the court at the time. I know I didn't. I wasn't following that case terribly closely. But that's mm -hmm. something that you said. Again, not a lawyer. <laughs> but let's pivot back to what we were originally looking at, which uh, the first of the two cases that we are looking at as far as the uh, broader topic of criminal justice is Shaw versus the United States. Yeah. So just to give everybody a little bit of background here, did you want to do that? Uh, sure. So basically what, what this case looked at is the petitioner, who that's the person who's asking the Supreme Court to hear the case, was the defendant in this case. So the person that was tried and convicted with crimes. The petitioner was convicted of a minor drug trafficking offense, several offenses, actually. I think he had crack cocaine uh, in his house, which, uh, if you are familiar with the president's super criminals bill, you know that crack cocaine is not treated very, well, it's treated very harshly <laughs> by our justice system, uh, much more harshly than, than regular cocaine, which... I don't know what that says about Biden's son, but I guess judge that for yourself. But anyway, it's, he was convicted of, of drug trafficking offenses relating to crack cocaine. And the prosecutor also brought a number of RICO charges against the defendant. So what's RICO? Well, RICO is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It's an act that was passed in 1970 basically to combat organized crime so that the government could go against the mafia in those cases, because it's very difficult to prosecute mafiosos as anything other than individuals, and prosecuting them as individuals doesn't accomplish anything. So Congress figured we need some 
very broad, very permissive legislation that will allow us to go after these people. Frankly, even we don't have all that much evidence against them because we know who they are, mm. right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As you can guess, Lex Rex is generally not a big fan of that sort of legislation, but what RICO is typically used for is to prosecute people who are involved in some kind of conspiracy across state lines, because remember, under Article One of the Constitution, Congress can't regulate it unless it's between the states. So yeah, or conspiracy between state lines involving money. So they charge this guy with several RICO charges in addition to these drug trafficking offenses. Jury looked at that and they said, no, we don't think he's guilty of the conspiracy stuff. We don't think he's guilty under RICO, but we do think that he had crack cocaine in his house and we think he was probably selling it to people. So we're going to find him guilty of that. Judge looked at this and actually commented on the record that he thought the jury's findings were bad. He thought this guy should have been found guilty under the RICO causes of action. And well, it turns out that federal law also gives judges fairly broad latitude when it comes to sentencing. And there's a law saying that judges can ratchet up, they can increase the sentence, make it more severe, if they believe that what the person did uh, is part of being a career criminal. So if there's evidence that person was a career criminal. So he does that. Well, what's the problem here? Well, the facts the judge relied upon to say that this guy is a career criminal are the same facts the jury had implicitly rejected by saying he was not guilty for those RICO causes of action. So that is now currently on petition for writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court. They are bringing several issues here, several legal issues, basically under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. So the Sixth Amendment is sort of the overriding one, and it's the overriding one because it's the one that has not been heard before. But what's the Sixth Amendment say? Well, it says, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy tr and public trial by, and this is the important part, an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. So that's the Sixth Amendment claim that's going on here. Well, how is that involved? Well, trial by jury of your peers means trial according to common law rules, which means, as we told you guys before on this podcast, that the jury is the finder of fact. The judge is the finder of law. So if you're considering whether or not something happened, you got to defer to the jury. Well, what's the problems going on here then? Well, it appears that the judge is deciding that something in fact happened, i.e. evidence of career criminality, based on something the jury did not find, since they found hmm. that those crimes had not been committed. So that's the basic issue. That's the overriding issue here. They're also bringing Fifth Amendment issues. Now, what's the Fifth Amendment have to say? So what the Fifth Amendment says is that no person shall be held twice for the same crime. You know, put in jeopardy twice, put um, jeopardy of life and limb. That's called the double jeopardy clause. And then it also says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. So several clauses in that amendment, those are the two relevant ones. Well, how does double jeopardy apply here? Well, essentially what they're arguing is that this guy is being forced to be tried twice for the same offense because the jury already looked at these facts, said they weren't met. Now the judge is looking at the same facts again. I, I think that's probably a not a strong claim uh, for reasons that we can get into in a bit. But there's there's precedent on that. Also, it's it's just in point of fact, not the same crime. It's may, they may depend on the same facts. But I think I think that is one of the weaker of the claims brought here. And then also the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty or property without the due process of the law. Now, hmm. what's the argument here? Well, basically, it's the same as the Sixth Amendment argument that having a jury be the fact finder in a case is part of the due process of the law, because that's the process that's required. So those are the issues the court's currently looking at. Court has heard some of these issues before. Eric, I'm, I'm kind of going on and on here. You got anything to jump in and say? Or? <laughs> no, not not as far as uh, the from an analytical perspective. I'm much more of a legal novice when it comes to the interpretations of these sorts of things. Well, how does it what's your knee jerk here? You know, how does that what is how does that sound? Well, it, it seems like, and I, again, I'm not sure if this is actually from a, a legal way of, of thinking about things. We, we get, so it's certainly for, for the audience and for Eric, Eric knows this, but the audience might not know this. We intentionally don't have two lawyers on this podcast because that would be really, really boring. None of it would be approachable. And we want to make sure that it's not just dry analytical, which is what lawyers would do. So that's why you're here, mm -hmm. Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. It certainly sounds like, well, it sounds like in a case where you'll 
you see this all the time on TV law, you know, where you'll have a something that's presented as evidence. It's for some reason is no not relevant. So it gets stricken from the record. Mm -hmm. Right. And they tell they instruct the jury. Hey, judge goes, don't listen to any of that. Just pretend it never yeah. happened. And then they do the thing where and they then say, make your you know, judgment. objection sustained. And then they, it's all, but the mm -hmm. jury heard it anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, what do you do? Yeah. But um, it certainly seems like something like that, right? Like the judge was making a decision based on something that the jury in this case had excluded and said, well, we don't find him guilty of that. And then he kind of just took a little bit of that and put it in his judgment pot anyway. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the opposite of that, isn't it? Because it's usually mm -hmm. it's a judge telling a jury not to consider something. Here, the judge is supposed to be precluded from considering something, but he's a judge. You know, he's the big boss man. Mm. He's going to consider what he wants to consider. And if he wants to say the jury was a bad jury, made a bad decision, well, he's going to do that. And that's what he did mm. here. That's a good point. I, I actually would never have looked at it that way. But that you know, that is essentially sort of what's going on. And that issue... Maybe I am a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, you know... So what, what I would also add, though, is I do want to keep the Sixth Amendment and Fifth Amendment claims separate here. Mm. The Fifth Amendment issue has actually previously been considered by the court. That was considered in a 1997 case, a fairly famous case. It's called U.S. v. Watts. And, and part of the petition in the case we're currently talking about in Shaw v. U.S. is they say, you know, if you can't rule in favor of us on Sixth Amendment grounds, you got to overturn U.S. v. Watts. Because what does U.S. v. Watts say? Well, that one was a very similar case, except in that one, it involved uh, basically a crime that said if you use a firearm in connection with a drug offense, then you're guilty of a crime. That's its own crime, separate from the rest of it. Well, what happened was the police came into this guy's house. They found that he had cocaine. This was regular cocaine, not crack cocaine. So I guess they don't treat that as strictly <laughs> for whatever reason. But he had cocaine on, in, on his person. He also had two loaded firearms that were in his house. I guess found separately from the cocaine. So they added mm. that, they said, I guess having them loaded constitutes using them in the mind of some prosecutors. So they added that as a separate charge and the jury found him not guilty on that charge. They only found him guilty on the possession distribution charges. What the court considered in that case was just the Fifth Amendment double jeopardy issue. And that's part of why mm. I say I think the double jeopardy issue was the weaker claim here because they said, no, that doesn't count as being tried twice. Judges are well within their rights to consider evidence outside of what constituted whatever offenses the jury is, is finding the person guilty for, as long as that evidence was presented at trial and appears to be credible. Mm. That, that might not be a great ruling. I don't think it's a great ruling. I don't think it's a horrendous ruling either. I really don't think judges ought to be finding fact. I think that's a matter for a jury to consider mm. because a judge is no better than anybody else at knowing what's true and false. If judges are better at the law, which is why we give them questions of law. So you know, I, I take that as you will. That's that is what it is. But the problem with this case is that a lot of lower courts have taken that reasoning and they've applied it to Sixth Amendment claims, too. So they've applied it not just where there's double jeopardy issues, but they've also said when these Sixth Amendment claims apply. So if, if you recall, Sixth Amendment claim here was the jury clause the right to a trial by jury, where a jury is the fact finder in your case. And what judges have been doing is they've been applying this Fifth Amendment rationale, this double jeopardy rationale, to cases about whether or not the jury considered everything they were supposed to consider, whether or not your judge is in fact acting as your jury instead. That's not the appropriate context to apply that. So you know, that reasoning about a, a judge can, in some circumstances, sentence... Well, let's take a step back here. Eric, how would you intuitively assume that sentencing works? If, if you know that a judge has a range of, he can give a guy five years for this crime, but it can ratchet all the way up to 20 years, how would you assume a judge makes that decision? Uh, he's got like a guidebook for crimes based on the laws, right? So essentially if say court can, or the jury say convicts him of X crime, judge takes a look in his little book and says, ah, X crime, that's punishable from five to 10 years. Based on what we had all heard today, uh, I'd say this was a really bad one. So we're going to give them the max yeah. 10 years. When it's a really bad one, they they go with a higher sentence, right? So it, it's a simple example of that. So you got an assault case. If somebody assaults somebody else and you heard that it was because, I don't know, they slept with their wife or something, judge might be a little bit more understanding than if he assaulted somebody because he was 
of a race that person didn't like, right? Hmm. I mean, one is a pretty understandable reason for assaulting somebody. One is one that we don't find all that understandable. We would probably be less lenient on the second Hmm. one. That of necessity requires judges to consider facts that were non-dispositive in the jury's verdict. Because those facts have nothing to do with whether or not the person is guilty. So disposit, sorry, dispositive means that it makes or breaks the case. You know, it, it's enough on its own to, to decide the case. In other words, the dispositive facts are the ones that because they are true, the guy is guilty. If this, if this were not true, the guy would not be guilty. Those are the dispositive. Essentially facts. the videotape of him assaulting the person. Yeah. Right? The yeah, that's, evidence. yeah, we saw him do it. That's the, we saw him assault mm. somebody. That's the dispositive fact in this case. Mm. Judges have to consider non-dispositive facts whenever they're passing any kind of a sentence, because that's what allows you to say this was a more severe instance of this as opposed to a less severe one. Because the jury just comes back and tells you, we think this guy is guilty, as opposed to we think this guy is not guilty. They don't tell you how bad they thought it was. Judge has to decide that on his own. So what the court said in that Watts case in 1997, to get us way back to long walk for a short drink of water, uh, what they said (laughs) in that case was that, yeah, judges can absolutely consider stuff like this. That's not double jeopardy for a judge to do that. Because in that case, you know, the fact that there were weapons involved, that there were loaded weapons in the house, that did. That made it more severe than if those weapons weren't there, whether or not those weapons were actually used in connection with the crime. I think it's utterly absurd to say they were used in connection with the crime. I do think it makes sense to say this guy was probably a little bit more dangerous of a criminal because he had loaded weapons in his house than if he didn't. Now, yeah, I know mm. probably half of you are recoiling right now because that offends your Second Amendment sensibilities. It kind of offends mine, too, to be completely honest with you. But I, I can at least understand why like, the threat to police officers would be greater when investigating him. Sure, that's within judicial discretion. He can ratchet it up a little bit higher. I can at least understand the reasoning there, whether or not I agree with that. Fair enough, Eric? Yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll go with you on this one. But, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not yeah, saying I would find the same way as a judge. I'm saying that I think that's validly within judicial discretion uh, to decide that way. The issue in Shaw is quite different from that, because mm. the issue in Shaw is ratcheting up somebody's sentence on the basis of finding that person is a career criminal. It's not just facts and circumstances of the crime that was committed. It's well beyond that. Because career criminality means there's evidence of more than one crime, right? Mm. So in other words, yeah. something that you could at least conceivably charge a person with, person with, prosecute them with, and convict them of. That's not what's went on here. I think also doubly troubling is the fact that the judge explicitly said he did not agree with the jury's finding on those, uh, those RICO charges. I think this case really ought to be a slam dunk in favor of the petitioners. I think it is su- sufficiently different from Watts that I don't think a reasonable court could decide against the petitioner here. And it makes sense not to bring in things outside of what the person is charged for is like the when not just charged, but the uh, the sentencing that's given. It makes sense not to bring in things that are outside of that judgment uh, by a judge who feels differently than a jury. Essentially, that's where you have kind of, you know, you have runaway judges. You have uh, it's no longer linked to the the jury of your peers, it is something where one person essentially sees themselves above the peers that are making that decision and they're going ahead and saying, I know best. And that's exactly what's troubling to me there as well. Yeah, that's and I I absolutely do think whether or not it violates double jeopardy clause, whether or not he's being put under under jeopardy of life and limb twice, whether or not it's due process of the law, although I think it probably does violate his due process rights. But irrespective of all of that, it's certainly, in my view, depriving him of his right to a trial by jury of his peers because they explicitly yeah. said, no, we do not think he is guilty of criminal conspiracy. And then the judge is saying, I'm going to sentence you as a career criminal based on those conspiracy allegations. I don't think that's at all appropriate. And I think that there, there, ever since that 1997 case, that, uh, that Watts case that I mentioned, there's been so much judicial discretion on this kind of stuff. They just... Judges feel Mm. fine to say we're going to conclude based on the evidence presented at trial, totally irrespective of what the jury found. That was not what Watts said. All that Watts said was that you can consider the severity of the circumstances of the crime when passing sentence. This goes way beyond that. Judges frequently, regularly even go way beyond that. Court needs to rein that in. So I would Mm -hmm. I welcome court granting cert on that. 
Lex Rex will probably write an amicus brief on that in support of petitioners because I think that's a pretty important issue. You know, we don't want to erode our Sixth Amendment rights. Absolutely agreed. So uh, keep an eye on that Supreme Court docket as it comes up. Some exciting things coming around. The next one is Ruiz v. Massachusetts. We probably should have started with this one because this one's a little bit simpler. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, Sorry, part of, this is part the, of the reason why judges and juries... have already had the hearty dinner. Right? <laughs> part of the reason why judges and juries consider separate issues is because the intersection of the things would be way too complicated for a jury to, to consider all of it. <laughs> Luckily, after this podcast, you can actually uh, take the bar exam and pass in California. So, <laughs> if, yeah, I mean, if you want to put in a whole heck of a lot of work, go to three years of law school. There you go. Get you charged <laughs> up on it. So let's I don't recommend go ahead it unless and... you're really sure you want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly one of those hobbyist activities no. <laughs> is becoming a lawyer. No. Um, yeah, Ru- so, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into some of the background of uh, Ruiz v. Massachusetts. So, so here it's basically what happened is petitioner was tried along with a co-defendant. Both people were involved in the same crime. Facts were essentially the same for both of these defendants. I don't even remember what the crime was. It doesn't really matter for what's going on in this case. But basically what happened is neither of these co-defendants testified at trial. You, know, you hear testimony of different witnesses. Oftentimes the accused will themselves want to testify. They don't have to do that because of a little thing, again, called the Fifth Amendment. This time, the clause against self-incrimination, you know, that nobody will be compelled to be a witness against himself. So kind of classic example of being a witness against yourself is actually appearing in trial to testify. You know, that's what you think of when you think of a witness, right? So if you are a criminal defendant, nobody can compel you to testify against yourself. That's what's going on here. Neither of them did that. Kind of side note, sidebar here. It's generally a really bad idea to testify in your own criminal trial. Nearly mm. every criminal defense attorney will advise their client not to testify in their own criminal trial because it's only going to hurt you. Whenever you watch those high profile trials where they always have the criminal defendant testifying, that's because the defendant asked their lawyer to do that. A lawyer is, is actually legally prohibited from taking steps to make sure his client doesn't testify. So generally just you know, keep in mind, that's almost always done against advice of counsel. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Don't do it. Don't advice, Eric, but in generally, in general, that yeah. is not advisable. So you're giving them the rope to hang you with yeah, 99% of the time. Yeah. So. Generally you don't want to do that. So these guys were smart. They didn't do it, but that didn't save them either because what ended up happening? Well, the jury, <laughs> was watching them through the whole trial. You know, as juries do, you can't help that as a juror. You're going to look at the defendant's expression when people are testifying and you'd be like, oh, gee, wow, that was that was some really bad facts that that witness just gave. I wonder what that guy's reaction to that is. You're going to look over, you're going to see how he reacts. Hmm. And I guess based on this defendant's body language, the jury thought he was probably guilty. So, which, again, off the record here, I'm sure that happens in trials every day. I'm sure every day jurors don't really have enough evidence to convict if they purely look at the evidentiary record. But based on their feelings about somebody, they say, no, I really think the guy did it. And they rule a certain way. I'm sure that happens every single day. Problem is, in this particular case, the jury asked the judge if they could do that. What did the judge say, Eric? (laughs) So the judge replied under Massachusetts law (laughs) that they could not consider the defendant's demeanor as evidence, but they could consider any observations made during the trial. Yeah. So So, Massachusetts law says you can consider any observations made during trial. Now, what's the issue here? The issue is there's always a record of evidence in trials, right? So there's there's a court reporter. Every trial has a court reporter. It's actually of all the government people, of all the government employees who are in the room during a trial, the court reporter is the best paid of any of those people. Correct me. Correct me if I'm wrong as well. When the court reporter is taking down notes, they're not writing like a screenwriter would write. Suspiciously. Doing, Defendant <laughs> makes incredulous look. Yeah. <laughs> Defendant scoffs. As if very, very guilty. Defendant says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they, they try not to do that. In fact, they never do that in any transcript that I've ever seen. But yeah, the best paid person, best paid government person in that room, other than the judge, you know, that's they're obviously paid a little better. But a bailiff, you know, all the different people in the room, court reporters are very well paid. Uh, mm. So because it's very, very important to get an accurate record, that's what's used on appeal. And juries are supposed to rule on the basis of the record, 
right? That's the evidence that's in front of you, is the evidentiary record. So when you consider things like body language, physical demeanor, other non-verbal things presented at trial, those things didn't make it onto the record. So you are mm -hmm. technically issuing a verdict against what's on the record. Now, we all know that probably happens every day, but part of an impartial jury is at least trying not to do that, right? Trying to rule mm -hmm. based on the evidence that's presented to you. We know that's hard to do. Uh, we know humans are fallible. We know that emotions are involved in every, de every decision we make, but we try to minimize that in court. We know it's not gonna be perfect, but we get the closest we can. So the question is, was this a bad jury instruction when the judge said that he could consider any observations made during the trial? What do you think, Eric? What's, what's your, what's your knee jerk on that? I'm curious. I mean, so there's two ways I think when I read this or when I, I see what kind of was instructed, because observations can go like one of two ways. You can have like observations that are made and like, of physical evidence, right? Like, here's the murder weapon. Yeah, exactly. There was blood on it. But to say, like, especially if it makes it onto the record, right? Like, I would think that that would be, like, you know, what maybe the judge was was saying and that it was interpreted poorly. But also, if you're saying something, of, you can't consider the defendant's demeanor as evidence, but you can consider any observations made. It's it's kind of vague whether the the jury is the one making those observations or if those observations made are in evidence if like a witness were saying something about the body language of somebody in like uh, of the defendant if that makes sense right if a witness yeah. is previously recounting what the body language was like hey he was sweating and when i was quite you know the police officer saying hey he was sweating when i was questioning him about this you know and i thought that it seemed like he was hiding something right that's an that's an observation of body language but it is not the observation of body language in the court at the time of, of doing that, which is what the jury made their decision based on, which is why they convicted one and not the other. Yeah, that's because if the facts were pretty much exactly the same for both defendants and they convicted one of them, what can the ruling possibly be based on? Or rather, what can the verdict possibly yeah. be based on? I didn't like the look of that guy. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty much just <laughs> Gosh, his that's body gotta language. Stink. <laughs> <laughs> being the guy that got convicted like what about him <laughs> me but not just because uh, you had a guilty look i didn't like you so you're guilty yeah so so here's i want to give the actual language because it's a little bit confusing if you read the petition here what was going on uh because mm. you know, they, they make the claim that, that that the judge invited the jury to consider his body language technically he didn't do that but here we've got so so the exact questions asked by the jury here were can we take the defendant's body language into consideration as evidence. And then over the petitioner's repeated objections, but in compliance with settled Massachusetts law on the topic, the judge answered this way. He said, while not in evidence, the jury is entitled to consider any observations you made of the defendant's demeanor during the trial. You know, that does not sound to me like the judge is rejecting the ability of the jury to decide based on body language at all. I would probably read that as an invitation to do so as well. Hmm. It's kind of a case of uh, the files are in the computer. You yeah, know? <laughs> it's, you right? kind of have to already they, know the defined terms here to not think that way, right? It, it definitely seems that way, because if I if I were just reading this as a layperson, as I am, um, it definitely seems like they're saying, hey, look at him during the trial. If he looks like he's guilty, then make your decision that way. Yeah. But I'm sure when the judge was presenting that information that he was coming from the mindset of saying, you know, observations like we had said previously, well, what does that even mean? Because it's while not evidence, the jury is entitled to consider. Oh. Well, but the jury is supposed to rule based on evidence. So for what purpose are they considering those things? If they find somebody actually... guilty, they have to find them guilty based on evidence. Yet they're told that they can consider this thing that they are told is not evidence. What are they supposed to do with that? I recant what I had said previously. It just sounds like a bad instruction. <laughs> I, I think it's a bad instruction. Actually, I think it may be a fine instruction consistent with Massachusetts law. But sort of my, my broader point I wanted to make about this one is this is a strange eccentricity of Massachusetts law. Other states don't have this. I think it's very clear that a judge should instruct a jury only to consider evidence. Mm. Now, you could say th the way in which they said something, but... And, and why is that? You know, sort of we, we started this whole conversation saying that there's a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Both of these guys exercised that right. Yet they're still essentially being forced to be 
witnesses against themselves, aren't they? Because even though they didn't take the stand, people are still staring at them, and they're still saying whether or not they appear to be guilty or innocent based on their demeanor. Hmm. That, to me, sounds like being forced to be a witness against yourself, no? That is fair. I do think, like, isn't there a... The court can consider things, or at least when, like, when you're questioned by police officers, they can consider things like your body language and demeanor. So the way that things like that, the way that would enter the evidentiary record is you'd have a police officer testifying at trial and the lawyer would ask, did the defendant appear to be agitated when you questioned him? And the police officer would say, yes. And then the lawyer would say, in your estimation, did he appear to be telling the truth? And the police officer would say, no, he did not appear to be telling the truth. Now it's on the record that based on his physical demeanor, the fact that he seemed agitated, he's more likely to be guilty. Fair point about the record. So, I mean, when when say this is through the process of the um, cert, the writ, writ of certiorari, when this gets elevated to a higher court to be reviewed, they are going to look at the record. Right. They're going to see, hey, none of this body language demeanor stuff was actually recorded. Well, and, and part of it, it too, because if, if a jury's looking at a witness and judging the witness's physical demeanor or their body language, it, that's that makes a little more sense to me because juries are fact finders. You know, that's part of what you're doing. You have to judge who's telling the truth in this case versus who's not telling the truth. And there's not always facts that can show you whether or not that's you know, who, who that's true of. You can't always judge that factually. You have to do it based on your gut. You have to do it based on who you trust. That guy appeared to be more reliable. He didn't look at his feet the whole time, whatever it is. And that's the reason why appellate courts almost always defer to factual findings of lower courts, because we want juries to be the ones to make that determination. Juries are the best finders of fact that we have. The issue here is that when someone didn't testify because they have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, that we are still trying to judge that person's truth or lack thereof based on their physical demeanor. Well, they didn't say anything. There's no truth or lack thereof to judge, which that would be my issue with this. It's, it's in considering a witness's testimony makes complete sense because that's what you're supposed to be judging. That's what's been put in front of you to judge. When considering somebody that has not been put in front of you, it's not currently testifying as a witness, there's, there's nothing that you're being asked to judge there. You're looking yeah, when, at something when, fairly extraneous when and I don't know if I'm using this term right, but when like the material evidence is all the same for two people, one gets convicted, one doesn't. That seems like injustice as could be most clearly illustrated. Yeah. Right. Either one of them, either they're both guilty or they're both not. If everything is the same between them. Well, yeah. And if that's weighed as evidence, if that's something that ends up being dispositive in this case, which that's. When, when, it's, when it's the thing that makes the difference between two equally situated defendants, that is absolutely a dispositive thing. If that's what mm. ends up being dispositive, well, then isn't the guy sort of being compelled to witness against himself? Because he has to sit there through the whole trial. He doesn't have the option to not show up for his trial. He can't be tried in absentia. We have laws mm. against that. So wouldn't we sort of be saying that by showing up to your trial at all, well, we can't put you on the stand, but we are going to make you a witness against yourself because the jury can still weigh it as evidence. That definitely makes sense. I think <laughs> I've it's, you it's along tough here. to say, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I think it makes sense, right? Because in, in a way, you're questioning them without questioning them, yeah. right? You're getting their reaction, but it's also not in a way that, and I think that this is kind of the- Well, it ended up being the most important evidence in the case. Sorry to interrupt you, Eric. Yeah, when it's the defining yeah. reason for somebody to be convicted and another not. You were going to say something, I'm sorry. Oh, it's just that when, you know, so say it does, you know, basically get popped up to a higher court to get reviewed, they're not going to have the actual defining bit of evidence, you know, a rejected red stamp just is going to come on it. But mm -hmm. that's kind of the fun thing about these uh, <laughs> these issues with the courts is that you kind of never know. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, we believe, or at least I believe, don't want to speak for everybody, Alex Rex, but I, I believe that Fifth Amendment rights ought to be very strongly protected, especially the right against self-incrimination, because it's so abused really by police departments throughout this country. That's not police officers' fault. That's not a criticism of police officers themselves. They're trained by a lot of the best paid lawyers in the country to come around and, and say exactly what they can do to extract a confession and what they can't do to extract a confession. So they'll toe right up to whatever line you set. You can guarantee if you get a bad ruling on this case, if the court does grant cert and then rules against the defendant here, you can guarantee the training for lawyers is going to change after this. 
It's going to be you draw as much attention as possible to non-testifying defendants. You say, look how he looked at his hands the whole trial. And if he didn't look at his hands, you say, look how he confidently stared ahead as if in defiance of this jury. You know, it's... We really don't want dispositive, the dispositive issues in cases to become entirely about the way that defendants acted when they not look, on the stand. That's yeah, not great. Because really, I mean, that it just takes a good spin artist, right? You could just be like you said. You can literally paint if if everything that something is uh, somebody is doing is a potential evidentiary reason for them to be guilty, then. It, uh, there's nothing that they can't do. Yeah. Look at them staring confidently. Look at them acting guilty by making you know such a blubbering mess of themselves. Really, there's nothing that they could. Everything. I mean, that I'd they probably instruct clients to wear a is, bag over their head to court. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then I and then I would say like I put it on the record under advice of counsel. He's wearing a bag over his head because I don't know what you guys are going to consider, and I believe strongly in his right against self-incrimination. So I'm not going to have him sit here and incriminate himself. Mm. Now, let's hope the, the court sides on the right right the side of that case, because that is definitely something which uh, should raise an eyebrow if it uh, goes any which way but rejected. Yeah. Well, I want them to grant cert, and then I want them to rule Sorry. in favor of the petitioners. <laughs> the Again, language on this stuff not a gets lawyer. weird because it's double <laughs> negatives and whatnot. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, that those are some fun cases coming up on the Supreme or possibly coming up on the Supreme Court stop docket. Shaw v. United States and Ruiz v. Massachusetts. So with that, well, with that, we're going to cut this segment short and yeah. move on to <laughs> Captain Kangaroo Court. Yeah. Play that theme okay. music. Let me let me find it. All right, folks, welcome everybody. Come around, young and old, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for everyone's favorite section of this podcast, Captain Kangaroo Court. There, I hit the mark that time. All right. Yeah, past uh. Captain Kangaroo Court. Sad to hear it go, because uh, it's such a pleasant little ditty. Yeah, well, we'll hear it again at the end. Don't worry, David. Or David, <laughs> I'm too used to this. Don't worry, Eric. You'll hear it again soon enough. <laughs> Look at me. I am the David now. <laughs> yeah, he's David now. David, I hope you're listening yeah. to this, because you've been replaced. You've been supplanted. Line of succession states. <laughs> yeah, does Eric have a valid claim to the podcast? <laughs> we will see. We'll leave it to the lawyers. You know, I, this is a point <laughs> worth noting. So everybody talks about elections like they're such a big deal. Tons of monarchies in Britain, not in Britain, actually, yeah, in Britain too, even prior to, prior to William the Conqueror, at least, but throughout most of Europe, most monarchies were elective. The thing was nobody ever voted for someone that wasn't the king's firstborn son, because that's the only person that everybody could agree on. That's why we were so unsure that elections would work in the United States and really ended up having to be blessed by the fact that George Washington had no sons uh, and the fact that he, you know, retired from political life. But anyway, that's Sort of fun fact, elections tend not to be something that's actually, you vote for whoever the heck you want. It's just sort of putting a rubber stamp on who the next guy is going to be. It's America that changed that. So that's not so much a kangaroo court thing, just a fun fact. But hmm. All right, so what well, have you got for us today, Eric? The more you know. All right, perfect. Well, uh, we're going to start off today with, let me get this on over to you. So... Um, we're looking at an article from Business Insider, renowned constitutional scholar, Business Insider, um, with an yeah, article entitled. They're, they're one of the best of them. You know, we had our conference mm. with in Washington, D.C. with all the constitutional lawyers and Business Insider. They were right at the top. And with that, <laughs> uh, this article is That's entitled. That's not true. In case the sarcasm yeah. wasn't uh, dripping enough for you. So the article is entitled Republicans want to rewrite the Constitution to limit federal power. But a former senator says a runaway convention could spell danger for healthcare, education and the environment. Oh, that's the risk. So is it not that we could potentially lose our all. Constitution? It's the risk is that it might be bad for the environment. Not that laws you previously held dear and things like double jeopardy yeah. <laughs> or quartering of soldiers free and all those speech. other fun ones could just go out the door. Yeah. Free speech. Having Gosh. a president. <laughs> you know, having no, states. no, not, not that all of the organization and all the thought that was uh, written into the Constitution could go out the door for uh, 
you know, whatever people decide at this constitutional convention, no, that it could spell disaster. So essentially some of the points of this article. I guess that's the fear because Republicans are holding it, right? Because if it were Democrats, we'd say that it would do a whole host of other things the Republicans don't like. But. Exactly. I mean, you can't really uh, you can't really uh, get something. And again, I'm probably well, actually, this is probably new information for everybody. I'm probably one of the more left leaning or more further left leaning than than uh, what might be uh, the median political belief right. behind the Lex Rex Institute. And, and we uh, love you for that, Eric. That's no, really, <laughs> because it's we are not a partisan organization. Mm. Anybody who wants to uphold the Constitution is welcome here. Yeah, actually. And, and part of the reason actually why I joined and uh, came, you know, put so much effort into the Lexrex uh, Institute is because I'd previously volunteered with the ACLU. And a lot of that was based on their, you know, their championed cause of forwarding civil liberties yeah. in the United States. Uh, they important. had gotten a little too political for my tastes. They, they go so, back and forth. They've been hit and miss yeah. over the years. It's I they'll, they they'll probably find their way again there. Yeah, hopefully. So I still, uh, you know, keep in touch with my contacts there. But my, my favorite one was when they defended the rights of students to protest the ACLU. They took that, that case that that's, that's that to great. me is the most principled case that anyone's taken in the past 50 years. So Yeah, that's literally the, uh, the is it the Patrick Henry quote? The um, give me liberty or give me death. The Voltaire, I may not agree with a word you say, but I will defend your death, the right to say it. That's the one. Okay. <laughs> yes. That reminds me of the Voltaire quote. <laughs> All right. It could well, have been anyway, Patrick Henry. So, I'm sure he would agree with that. Yeah, that's fair. I'm, 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 I have a knack for attributing apoc- apocryphal quotes. So... Article five constitutional convention. Uh, this uh, writer of this book peddler is uh, spelling a little bit of danger on the horizon from Republicans coming and doing a constitutional convention to. Uh, yeah, because what, what happened? I say this with seriousness, limit the power of the federal government. Well, that's what they say they're going to do. But what happened the last time we had a constitutional convention, Eric? It's actually a great question because there hasn't. We got the Constitution for the original one. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, we got the Constitution. That's the last time we had one of these. Other than that, every amendment's been passed via the Article six route, uh, which is basically consensus among the states or, you know, you send it to state legislatures and state legislatures have to vote to ratify Mm -hmm. that amendment. Then it becomes an amendment. Sort of a much more public process convention. States just appoint delegates to a convention. They go and figure it out and they send it back. And then you got a new constitution. Now, our founding fathers, because they were so worried about the appearance of that kind of convention, they said, our you know, our, our suggestions, the amendment, the uh, constitution we proposed, that's not going to become a constitution until the states have ratified it. And it goes to state ratifying conventions to do that. Under the Article 5 procedure, we don't have that step. It's just whatever mm-hmm. this, this convention decides to do. So they can get together. They can say, hey, you know, I don't think limiting... The power of the federal government is a great idea, actually. In fact, I think that it should have unlimited powers and that I should be the one in charge of it. A lot and of people are tempted to that. Wyoming so. became the federal government. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think you're going to get a lot of states agreeing in that way. Um, it does. There is an interesting quote, or at least, you know, they say the framers left no rules and this uncertainty lies great danger and possibly great power. I tend to agree with that. And with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, it's, I, I tend to think that Article 6 is the better route. It's the more public one. I, I think that Article 5 is really there in the event the Constitution turns out to not work as well as they anticipated. But, you know, it's, it's been going 250 years strong at this point. I think it's working fairly well. Uh, the, the Article 5 route is proposed by a lot of people because it's, it's perceived to be quicker and easier, uh, much like the mm-hmm. dark side of the force. <laughs> It, it seems like it's one of those things that gets touted like uh, packing the court sort of thing as like the, you know, the red button, yeah. the kind of nuke it situation. Well, they could. Where the, the realistic possibility of it happening is pretty low. Yeah. Right. Yep. And on top of it, I mean, there is some interesting things. I don't think that we like from a personal opinion, I don't think that we would see that happen. I don't think that we would see a lot of the states agree on specific on a lot of certain things because those delegates that are coming, the assumption is, is that what they're appointed by the state legislatures. Mm-hmm. 
and then they would go together and then uh you know formally make decisions i guess they yeah, would basically, that just be yeah. and that would be just basically they would could go in and just you know either nullify amendments or ratify new ones or, or, or nullify anything is in the constitution huh. really and then do whatever they want which is kind of the fear here now i <laughs> think that you know they would have to get people from different states to agree uh, so there's always people who a lot of the groups that oppose Article five conventions. And, you know, I, I do oppose Article five conventions pretty strongly because I think it's just it's too risky. No reason to do it that way. But a lot of the groups that oppose this tend to have a little bit of a conspiratorial bent to them because they what they think is, well, this one group, this one powerful kind of secret group is going to make sure that a bunch of states appoint their people as delegates to this thing. And because they're not necessarily public figures that are going to this thing, people will not know that ahead of time. There is a real risk of that. Uh, you know, I don't know that that's what's going on currently. Actually, we're working on a case that we haven't made public yet that shows that maybe exactly what's going on. I don't know how much power the group behind it has, but it does appear that they're at least trying to do that. But yeah, anyway, that's the opposition does tend to take on a little bit of a conspiratorial bent. Uh, and you can see that language reflected in this article for sure. Well, I may not be a uh, lawyer as a hobbyist, but I am a conspiracy theorist as a hobbyist. <laughs> so that really uh, well, you got to read our article really about gets it when we're me. done on the case that we're working on. It's oh, it's I'll a lot of follow the money the kind line. of stuff. So, you know, this hmm. this group got money to wash it so that you couldn't see what they were doing with it. That sort of thing. Yeah. Interesting. In the words of a, a comedian that's whose clip has been circulating around various social media, if you don't believe in conspiracy theorists, what, you think the federal government's just batting a thousand? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you think you they're know, just always think, telling the truth? You think about conspiracy, it's actually very plausible. Because what is a conspiracy? Well, it's, it's, it's two or more people working together in private toward an illicit end. That's the legal definition of conspiracy. Very, very hard to prove in court because they're doing it in private and they don't keep records. Mm. But yeah, I mean, if you think that peop that more than one person is not working together or are not working together in Washington towards some of these ends. That's, you're wrong. More than one person's involved in most of this stuff, so. Well, there you go. I believe, Alex, you had our next Yeah, mine's really silly. I'm not sure we even want to do it. Let me pull it up, though. That's, it's really, just as as a warning, it's very, very silly. So this is this is a Reddit thing. We're not using Twitter this week. And what it says is, what's the worst plot hole you've seen in a well-regarded movie? And the, and the uh, I almost said Twitter, the Reddit user, you, oh, that just means user, Rob5i, I'll get this right one of these days, trust me, says, <laughs> in the film Gravity, George Clooney is hanging onto a tether and insists Sandra Bullock cut him loose to save herself. This is complete nonsense, as there is no physical force pulling him away. With the slight tug on the tether, he would have floated over to her. It's a monumental plot hole. The director got an Oscar when he should have been imprisoned. So this is sort of my legal hot take because I just wanted to point out that it's not actually illegal to make movies with glaring plot holes. Whether or not it should be, I think it's a separate issue. But mm. he should, I don't think he should actually be imprisoned for that. But maybe they ought to make a law well, against glaring plot holes. That's a fair point. We've drifted from the laws of the American system to the laws of physics. Yeah, now they're disregarded. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, too. They're, they're both laws, but you don't get imprisoned for breaking both of them. That's fair. If you break the Although, laws of I physics, you things... just, in fact, you just can't do that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fair. Perfect. Well, we will end uh, Captain Kangaroo Court with a, um, I guess this is less silly and more... Um, I want to say absurd, but we'll we'll get your take on that. Um, I have not listened to this yet. Open so here. I just made sure the file. Yeah, no. Worked. So just just give a little bit of background on this. Uh, in uh, cue with my comment earlier about being slightly conspiratorial or at least a hobbyist, this was taken from a podcast called The Tim Dillon Show. He's a comedian. He does do some political, have some political guests and have some political jokes and stuff. And then he also uh, does some conspiratorial stuff. He brought on a- Sounds sort of like the Joe uh, Rogan podcast. Yeah, actually he was, that's where he got kind of his like big break was on the Joe Rogan. Okay. So that's like where he- Yeah, that's a popular format. Maybe we ought to start doing that. That's Yeah, Joe, if you're listening, please have us or at least our- uh, uh, legal expert and president, Alex Hollywood, I'm sure that that would be uh, you guys could get into yeah. some 
interesting things, though I doubt that uh, Haberbush will be indulging in some of the uh, substances that are frequented on the show. Yeah, probably not. That's <laughs> That might cause problems with my federal bar membership because technically marijuana is still illegal nationally. So, Yeah, I don't even think it's legal in Texas, but I could be wrong there. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm sure maybe lawyers are on his show. I don't know, but that's you, you engage. That's some risky stuff to be doing because currently the, the actual law is that marijuana is federally illegal. Just so you guys are aware, that's fair point. Yeah, that hasn't been not been of, of all the things that we've seen happen um, in this administration. The thing of uh, legalizing marijuana was not one of them. And that's you know, you uh, know the case that said that marijuana, that, that the federal government could even outlaw marijuana, because remember, Commerce Clause, Congress can pretty much only regulate stuff that's commerce between the states. You know, that was a Scalia opinion when they, he said that it did constitute interstate commerce. Interesting. Apparently, he feels more strongly about drugs than he does about the Commerce Clause. Well, um, we, uh, you know, nobody, po-buddy's po nerfect. Because it's not just say. sale of marijuana that's illegal, it's possession and use. Yeah. I don't think there's any commerce involved there, but that's a Scalia opinion, and believe it or not. usage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so this uh, this is taken from uh, a podcast clip of The Tim Dillon Show. Uh, he was interviewing a Substack author who is, um, I, I guess, has a, a decent following. He apparently gets under a lot of people's skin, and I can see why. His name is Curtis Yarvin. Curtis uh, Yarvin. He is a... Neo-monarchist as uh, Wikipedia oh, no. paints him. We're really going to end yeah, on this, so. Eric. Oh, you know, you know, I like to, to uh, bring in a little bit of a twist to things. I so am so not we'll a fan of monarchists. I mean, I, really, I, our name was no was no indication of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, sorry, Queen Lizzie. This uh, podcast it's fine episode. for Britain, but we're not Britain, so <laughs> yeah. All right, we're going to go ahead. I don't and oppose it on principle. In. I just don't understand why, if you have a Republican form of government that's working, why would you want to get rid of it? But yeah, I don't know. Um, this guy has some interesting takes, but he does make a um, so I, to set up this clip. He's basically talking about how somebody would come in and essentially oust the political uh, regime currently and the structure, uh -huh. and how they would implement something new. I think he's talking in a hypothetical of how you could get essentially hopefully because if he's not then it's in place. sedition. So. But essentially what he's saying, as you'll see, is that the steps that he is proclaiming are, in fact, constitutional. Oh, then it's not sedition. It's just a bad idea. Mm. So let's listen in. All right. The next Caesar will somehow come out of the next president who's an FDR, who's a Kennedy, will somehow come out of an American election. That's the only way you get to be president. Right. Right. Um, and they will just be like, you know what? I just got elected president. It says in the Constitution... I just read the con I read it. I read it on the bathroom. I read it a couple times. So I read it over again. Um, it says that the president is a chief executive of the executive branch. To my mind, that's pretty clear. Um, it says the Supreme Court can write opinions and Congress can pass laws. And um, it is the president's um, you know, understanding that he's here to execute the supreme law of the land. Um, I, as president, but I, as president, will um, treat the opinions and the laws passed by Congress with as much respect as they deserve. There's a great deal of expertise there. Um, right. I'll listen with great interest. Um, I'm now, um, so what I'm now, I'm yeah. now sending the secret service to the fed. They're taking over the fed. We're going to fund an entirely new government directly from the fed and the power of the purse which is... Um, and is that constitutional? Yes, it's completely sure. constitutional. Right. In fact, you would describe this new monarchical no. presidency as a constitutional presidency. <laughs> and then, it's actually yeah. a restoration of the real constitution to put the chief executive then, in charge of the executive. Um, so I cut it off before it gets a little yeah, wally there. The Fed, the Fed's not even an instrument in government. The Fed is a private bank. So step one in his plan is has become president, not that's, constitutional. Well, step one has become president. That's that's fairly. Well, he's saying this 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 nameless president, this yes, person yes. who would go about this way. Yeah. So the Federal Reserve, yeah. for those who don't know, was established in 1913, part of the Federal Reserve Act, as a private bank that could essentially issue credit in the form of purchasing treasury bonds. 
I'm not going to get into the economics of all that. I've got pretty strong economic opinions. Ask, ask me about those opinions outside this podcast. I will be happy to talk to you for hours about that, as, as Eric knows. So, but but <laughs> Federal Reserve is not an instrument of the government. If you use the Federal Reserve to fund a government that is parallel with the one authorized by the Constitution, you know, that is the one that's enacted by Congress uh, and subject to the president, basically executing what Congress has enacted. I, I'm not sure how you can square that with the idea of faithfully executing the laws of the United States and upholding the Constitution of the United States. That's, that seems like more than a reach to me. That's, that, to me, seems like treason. Yeah, it, it definitely seems. And, yeah, no, just from a, from a procedural standpoint, because one of the aspects of our Constitution is not that it's just a list of rules of what people can do. And well, especially it's not that it's not just a list of what the government cannot do. It is also a a procedure or it factors in multiple levels of procedures of how things are done. Right. And one of those things is that the president actually doesn't get to decide what's paid for and what's not. All of right. those decisions have to come well, but, from Congress. And that's that's a, that's true as well. Uh, that's a separate point, really, I think, because the, the main mistake this guy makes is the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. is not part of government. But say that he proposed the same plan mm-hmm. using the Treasury, saying that we're just going to fund whatever we want using the Federal Treasury. Well, the problem there is the president does not have the power of the purse. House of Representatives, of course, has the power of the purse. If you have a spending bill, it's got to originate in the House of Representatives. And the president, there actually is Supreme Court ruling on this. Supreme Court has ruled on this in the past. The president must spend money as Congress allocates it. He can't spend money in excess of what Congress allocates. He actually can't even spend less than what Congress allocates. He has to give it to whatever project Congress gives it to. So even if he were using an arm of the the government to do this, what this guy is proposing is still blatantly unconstitutional. But I want to point out, using a private bank to do it, you actually don't even need the first step of this plan. You don't need to be president. If you've got a very, very powerful private bank that will give you unlimited funds, you know, have that. Try mm. and have your own government. You're certainly free to try. It's going to be very difficult, given that ours is fairly well established and has mm. lots of guns. You can try uh, buying an oil platform and maybe naming it Sealand or something of the like. You could try it. You could try it. It's, it's worked for some out there. <laughs> for a time. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, now that Charles is king, though, he's going to put an end no, no more to sea land. land and destroy the rebellion. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was a uh, it made me raise an eyebrow and several things that he said throughout the entire broadcast. That's did, pretty but bad. The idea of attesting yeah, it as being bad. entirely constitutional is one of those things where I come out and just, you know, it, it just it gets my goat. All right. Grinds my gears. Yeah. And, and put, put a little asterisk next to that. You know, yeah, not actually this is constitutional. constitutional. Not actually constitutional. <laughs> <laughs> except, that, except that at its core, it's just yeah. sort of ignoring the Constitution. But whatever. <laughs> all right. So, all right, folks. That's it. Once again, unfortunately, we've got to end everyone's favorite segment of this podcast. So, boys and girls, go back to your lives and with this newfound information about our system of government and the rule of law and laws of the United States, go and tell your friends about it. Have them listen to this podcast, too. We could use their, we could use more ears. I'm almost said eyes, but really ears. It's a podcast. So, yeah, have them listen next week. But that's all for Captain Kangaroo Corey. Well, I believe, what have we covered today? We have really done the full scope. We have looked at some interesting cases that were coming up on the docket uh, with Shavi, United States, and Ruiz versus Massachusetts. We... Could substantially affect rights of the accused. Mm-hmm. So Some interesting criminal just, justice procedures there. And then we ended it all with a little Captain Kangaroo Court. So thank you, everybody, for listening today. Please take a look at our YouTube channel. We have some excellent videos coming around. I believe that we have some new Ask, of, Ask an Attorney videos in a new format. We actually got a new host on Ask an Attorney this week because John and David were both unavailable. So actually, the other Alex, my legal assistant, ends up hosting Ask an Attorney. Check that out. And 
Eric, thank you so much for filling in for David today. You make a much better oh. David than David. So uh, we may That's have for to the audience to decide. We'll uh, post a poll on our Facebook of who <laughs> you want to see on the next. No, I'm just kidding. I will uh, I will fill in. <laughs> we might I'll do fill that. in as Why a not? warm body. Yeah, on the Facebook our podcast. Current, uh, uh, <laughs> our current, our actual podcast host, not the acting podcast host, um, I believe is taking a journey to England right now to pay his personal respects to the, yes. the queen. Yeah. God rest her soul. Yeah, that was, that's why he's, no, he's, he's doing, going to school there. So he recently got accepted to University of Edinburgh. He's in their doctoral Burrow. program over there. Edinburgh. Going to be getting all smart so he can help us out even more mm -hmm. over here at LexRex. Why he's learning from Scots, I don't really know. But that's the path that he's chosen. So that's where he is right now. We're going to have an eight-hour time difference. So it's going to really inconvenience us to get these recorded in the future. So you're welcome. Well, I'm sure that he'll come back with some fancy <laughs> new ideas and some fancy new legwear. Um, I'm sure. Don't forget to check out our website, lexrex.org. Um, if you like what you're hearing, if you find it educational, if you think that other people should be listening to it and you want to expand our reach as well as empowering us to better defend the rights of really all Americans. Working with yeah. us, really. Yeah, yeah, working with us. That's, if you listen to this podcast, you are working with us. You're part of the struggle because half the struggle is for education. If the people know the Constitution of the United States, that's, that's half the battle to defending it. So thank you for listening. You are part of this fight. Excellent. And then, uh, yeah, we also have um, T-shirts and books that are available for donations on our website. Uh, keep an eye out on some events that are going to be published about coming around the bend and with that i believe that we can set off and leave y'all on this monday yep that's right it feels weird because mm -hmm. we're not recording on monday but we'll see you folks next week thank you for listening take care